today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Financial exclusion occurs for a lot of different reasons, but now we're creating a new one, which is the the need for identity proofing um, through um, your government-issued IDs and so on. Not everybody has them. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with consulting firm Ulysses Partners to create a four-part series on identity proofing and the importance of user experience in the emerging landscape. The series is based on our co-created guide, the Identity Proofing Guide, a practical hands-on review of user experience in leading solutions. In this session, I'm joined by David Milligan, Managing Partner at Ulysses Partners, and Graham Seal, Strategic Advisor to Community Banks and Credit Unions. We'll be talking about the current biometrics and verification landscape, the concept of data sharing consortia, and how different geographies around the world, from U.S. to India, are tackling the need to prove and verify identities. So I'm David Milligan. Um, I run a, a boutique consulting firm called Ulysses Partners uh, um, and work with Graham and other partners. We help financial services organizations and established fintech firms to work together and to enter new markets and to deliver their propositions uh, to wider audiences. I've worked in fintech and financial services for nearly 20 years. Some of the earliest bank fintech partnerships through to creating a fintech matchmaking platform, uh, which I sold to a, a big four advisory firm um, and have worked with literally hundreds of banks, institutions, and thousands of fintechs around the world in my now nearly 20 year career in the space. Well, welcome. And Graham, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Yes, I'm I'm Graham Seal. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I spent about 40 years in, I probably shouldn't say that's a long time, spent, but I, I did. I spent about 40 years in commercial banking, pretty much every aspect of banking, different leadership roles, um, and then um, working as a consultant with large banks, mid-sized banks, and community banks in the United States, um, and uh, working also with fintechs quite a bit on on how to partner with banks and with banks on how to partner with fintechs, quite an interesting challenge. Um, I focus now more on, on the area of financial inclusion uh, and uh, helping double bottom line and nonprofit organizations to uh, improve the quality of life in particularly the poorest areas around the world through access to financial services. Well, welcome. Um, you know, in previous sessions, we kind of defined what identity proofing is, got a, got a little bit about, about sort of best practices. Here, I feel like we're going to zoom out a little bit with you, Graham. Um, can you tell us about the current identity proofing and verification landscape and the role of biometrics? Yes, absolutely. I, um, I was thinking as, um, as David and Ruby and uh, Ashim were talking earlier on that um, in, in some ways, when I started in banking 40 years ago, um, identity proofing was really straightforward and very effective. And the user experience was actually very smooth and very nice because simply you had to walk into a branch. That's all there was. There were no ATMs. There was certainly no computer banking or anything. Um, you had to meet somebody and have a conversation. They had to get to know you. Uh, my uncle managed a branch of Barclays Bank in England uh, for many years. He knew every one of his customers and the staff knew every one of their customers. So if someone came in and said they wanted to do something really crazy, um, they would know, is, is this appropriate or is it not? Proofing and verification were just natural um, 
you know, I suppose you could call them biometrics um, in a very advanced way, no, actually knowing the person and their personality and character and everything. Um, over time, of course, it changed enormously. And um, it, the process of digitization over the last um, 20 years and increasing rapidly um, has led to a whole load of new concerns, uh, the possibility of identity theft. Uh, fraud has changed in nature enormously from being an insider manual activity to something that can happen through internet-based hacking. Um, and so um, the result of all of that, I think in terms of what the landscape is for identity proofing, it's um, really a bit of a mess. It's all over the place, especially if you look globally. And uh, there, are, there are lots of players, but it's not just that. Uh, the, the expectations of customers are very different in different contexts and different circumstances. Um, different industries have uh, very varied user experience expectations, but also very varied needs uh, in terms of proofing. Um, from country to country and from um, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, the, the changes are enormous, regulatory differences, the availability of government identities. Um, some countries have gone a long way toward uh, building a consistent, reliable identity system, but most countries don't have that. Um, United States doesn't have that. <laughs> so um, we, we don't really see that anywhere. And so you, you deal with what you've got. Um, the, the possibility of biometrics as well has changed over time. Uh, I, I remember when banks first started playing with biometrics. I, I think it was a South African bank, actually, that first introduced fingerprints um, at the ATM. Um, and, uh, well, we can tell how well that went because you don't see any ATMs with fingerprint readers <laughs> around in most places. So there's so many different ways of trying it. And I think it's still that way today. Uh, so many different organizations are trying different ways of proving and verifying identities, and they're using whatever tools are at their disposal. Mm. And so uh, when you look country by country, um, it, it varies a lot. But then even within a country, um, they, think of a, of a, a country in East Africa. Let, let's, let's pick on um, Uganda, which uh, is the one I know best probably. Um, in the cities... Uh, there are opportunities to get decent internet access. And so there's a possibility for biometrics. But uh, culturally, uh, it's a pretty hard sell. Um, if you get into rural areas where network's not very good and also where there's, there's great poverty, you're not going to find um, smartphones. Um, taking, taking selfies is actually possible on a flip phone, but you can't send it anywhere because you've got no data plan. Um, and, and so the, there's so many different factors that lead into um, the, the marketplace being a mess. Uh, any software company that wanted to be a global provider, and I haven't come across any who really have that aspiration, um, would really have their work cut out. Mm. I think, um, you know, just building on that I, I, and the, the fragmentation, right? So, so what we've seen is, as Graham pointed out, you have different countries and different regions and continents having, you know, a whole range of different kind of identities, right? So in Europe, you have the more more sort of centralized identities, national identity cards are sort of rolled out. 
on the one end. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we look at, you know, African countries or other developing countries like Mexico, where there's like six or seven different, you know, net government issued identity documents are possible. Um, and I agree, you were talking about, you know, again, somewhere in East Africa, like there's 15 different sort of um, government issued IDs. And while we might think, wow, that's unusual, then come back here to the United States where I am and, you know, states by state, they offer different driver's licenses. Some states have state IDs, some do not. Um, and then, you know, the only sort of common denominator across countries is, is a passport, but not everyone has a passport. So um, so that's the one side. You know, the, the official identity issuers are disparate around the world. And then on the other side, you've got um, a whole range of private sector companies, financial institutions first, but many others who need to prove the identity of their customers. Um, and uh, as we talked in earlier sessions about the trust, about making sure the payments are done securely for a variety of, of very valid reasons. So um, in that world, in, in, uh, in the branch days, you know, people would walk in and sign up and, and there was that sort of interaction. Um, but that was fairly low scale. Now you have many more people with many more interactions, many more firms. So the scale of the need to prove an identity and to verify an identity have just exploded um, and you know, hyper explosion, if you like, or exponential growth of that need when it comes to, um, when it comes to uh, the internet and digital tools being used. So in that space, what we've seen is that a whole bunch of private sector firms came in to try and help financial institutions and other companies to deal with this proving of identity problem. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting is you, you see like data aggregators, um, companies uh, in, in old days, I'm not sure if they're still around, but phonage, you know, would, would, would aggregate phone numbers. And then when people signed up, filled in a form for a bank, you know, what's your phone number? And the bank would go check that against the centralized database maintained by this private sector player. Um, you know, and that even extends to emailage, you know, checking an email address against a known email address. And so, you know, those are private sector players trying to find other proxies to help prove identity in a confusing world. Um, but, you know, now we're, we're seeing more and more of these um, like public private sector partnerships in a way. Um, and, and a fascinating example that we came across in our research is Canada. So Ruby, who was on in a previous webinar, um, you know, in his role as a banking executive, and I know he worked with various banks, TD Bank, I think was one of them, you know, was looking at in Canada, um, they have a partnership again with the, with the large banks there and with um, and the Canadian government where you can actually use your bank login to access your tax records. Um, and they're sharing that data between each other. Um, now, you know, somebody may, oh, how well does that work? Is that secure? You know, the point is what they're saying is the bank is saying we the bank has done a know your customer collecting and proving an identity when somebody opened up that account. Um, so that can be relied on as they then go on to open up other bank accounts with other banks. So they've done this partly to promote competition within banking, make it easier for people to switch accounts. And now they made it easier for people to access their government records. Um, so this kind of public-private partnership is something 
that has, again, emerged in the fragmented landscape. And I think that um, we're going to see more and more of this um, as this need to prove identities grows. And that raises some interesting questions as to what is the best way of doing this um, in, in a world of these data sharing consortiums. Yes, I want to... I want to touch on that. Um, I think what's really interesting is to hear uh, sort of this explanation across geographies as well as across time. Um, so can we get into the data sharing consortia? Um, can you walk us through what the concept is of a data sharing consortia and a consortium and how they play a role in the current landscape? Um, uh, happy to, but Graham, you, you had a thought on the... Well, uh, yeah, I was just going to mention um, one provider that uh, that I've come across. I'm working with a, um, a, a banking startup that plans to become a pan-African financial inclusion bank, digital bank, solely serving the bottom of the pyramid, uh, where identity proofing is really difficult. And we uh, we are starting to work with an organization called Smile Identity. I, yeah. I like that name yeah. um, because it's all it's all about somehow capturing a photograph somehow um, and capturing documents, comparing with government databases. Uh, they currently um, uh, connect to 50, 15 or so different ID types in five countries. Their plan is to move to 100-odd ID types in 30 different countries, and they provide a single point of access then for a bank like ours um, that otherwise just has a, a virtually impossible integration challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, so that, that's a development I think we're going to see a lot more, especially in parts of the world that have a lot of inconsistency. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point, but in fact, it links nicely to the idea of data sharing con- consortia, that is the correct term, uh, the plural of consortium, but yeah, it's become sort of less, less known. I talked earlier about you know, providers looking at pre- creating these sort of databases of phone numbers and email addresses and that sort of thing, right? Um, what we're seeing is that you know, there are there's more and more um, uh, private sector agreements in markets like the US where you know um, organizations are in an effort to reduce fraud and to make it easier and more secure starting to sort of share data and these are across customer types that they have now you know this this has many positives in terms of you know if if you share select customer data if it's possible to go check my phone number or to or for one bank to say, well, I know that you have successfully signed up with another bank, it can speed up the onboarding process. It improves that experience. And organizations, as we've said earlier, are all about how do they lower that abandonment rate at the point of sign up. Um, but you know, in our thinking around this, you know, one of our researchers, in fact, uh, used the phrase, and I thought it was great. He says, you know, my identity is not my phone number or my last address. You know. My identity is the thing that you know, I am here and my government issued identity. Um, and so, you know, um, another uh, phrase describing, you know, the map is not the country, in other words. So just relying on this sort of, you know, data sharing consortia to say, well, yes, you know, we checked the address and, you know, yes, that person was at the address. If that data is wrong, then that like slows everything down, you know, um, if, and, and it particularly becomes a problem with new and niche customer segments. So, so you know, um, immigrants, recent immigrants to a country, 
um, youth, you know, uh, people are, you know, what is their address? They'll change their phone number. They're, you know, these, these are problems that are very real and, and organizations are trying to deal with them. But, you know, it's very similar to the kind of problem that credit bureaus have with the so-called thin file, you know, people who don't have a credit history. And it leads to a, a, a challenge much like the financial inclusion challenge Graham talked about. So my point is, you know, in the fragmented landscape, um, private sector players are devising many different solutions to do it. But in fact, our argument is the gold standard, I would call it, of identity proofing is taking a government-issued identity document and absolutely proving that the person who has that document is, in fact, the legitimate owner of that document, and then being able to use that information later. Um, and um, as we said in the past, you know, Older technologies and approaches actually had quite a lot of manual workarounds in the background. You know, they take the picture, but in fact, they're sending off the photograph to a call center in India where somebody is looking and trying to like, you know, humans are assessing this. Um, modern technology and advances in AI and ML used by new providers is making that process much more seamless. And so we can get back to using official identity proofing rather than this idea of date, just data sharing consortiums. Um, so that's, that's what we think is happening in the space. And I, I do think there are a couple of challenges that we really do have to address, uh, whether we're talking consortia or individual vendors and so on. One is the creation of a, a deeper digital divide. And uh, you know, I've said I'm I'm particularly concerned about financial inclusion. Financial exclusion occurs for a lot of different reasons, but now we're creating a new one, which is the the need for identity proofing um, through um, you know, government-issued IDs and so on. Not everybody has them. Um, India has done a fantastic job um, with, with their identity solution uh, against ridiculous odds. Uh, mm. Nobody would have thought it possible. Most countries don't have that. Um, and so there are many people who are getting even further excluded because of this. And, and I, I would encourage all vendors, government agencies to really be thinking about this. Um, the other one is the challenge of privacy. Um, and I live in California, which is perhaps the most paranoid state in the world uh, when it comes to things like protecting my identity and my rights and everything else. Uh, and uh, we can't ignore that. Um, there are parts of the world where, where there isn't that kind of paranoia, but it will grow. California, unfortunately, has quite a lot of influence on the rest of the world, too. Uh, so um, I, not that I want to end on a, a negative, uh, mm. but uh, I, I think with all the promise, it's essential that we think about those factors. Mm. I, I just, yep. just last thing to add on that is that what I think that, um, you know, the idea of, of being able to make it possible for somebody to, you know, take an identity and prove it. Yes. I mean, if they, if government issued identities haven't been issued, that's a, that's a separate problem that needs to be addressed, but where it does exist, we should use it in order to, we should use the identity and we should use, I would argue the biometric to allow us to, um, you know, actually prove our identity and verified in the best possible way. Um, uh, yeah, as I said in an earlier thing, it's, it's not biometrics are not the problem. It's having the, lay, the rules of the land set to say, this is how my da data should be stored. And as I said in an earlier thing, 
In the same way that we have signature cards, you know, in days gone by, stored by a bank to be checked when necessary, we should be able to have our, our biometrics stored with our bank safely, securely, and used when needed. And when we stop using the working with a bank, we have the right to that be that uh, biometric to be destroyed. And if we had those sort of rules laid down, there would be there'd be less, you know, um, concern around how things are being used down the line. This was David Milligan and Graham Seal in conversation about the identity verification landscape, data sharing consortia, and identity proofing approaches around the world. This is part three of a four-part series we've created with Ulysses Partners on identity proofing. To read the transcript of this conversation and download the full identity proofing guide, head on over to the Tearsheet website. <laughs>